Thank you, Ashley and the band. If you have your Bibles this morning, I invite you to turn to the book of Matthew. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 9. While you're turning there, I'd like to just take the opportunity to thank Pastor Mike and the elders of this church for entrusting me with this pulpit to be preaching here. It's encouraging for the past few months to have been here and to establish a relationship with the pastors. Uh, It's been encouraging also to see quite a few people that I grew up with as members of this church who have been radically transformed in light of the gospel. Many of them are spreading the gospel to different nations. Many of them have answered a call to the gospel ministry, and it's very encouraging. Uh, One of those people that it's encouraging to have reconnected with is is Jimmy Black, the Black family. Uh, Jimmy Black was my seventh grade Sunday school teacher. And I remember as the years progressed and I was sensing a call to ministry, Jimmy was one of the first people who came to my house and prayed over me. He gave me a strong concordance and just gave me a lot of encouraging words. And so it's just wonderful to reconnect with him and see what God's doing in their lives and Miss Debbie as well. Just to give you a little bit of information about myself, I grew up in Hilliard, Florida. I graduated from Hilliard High School in 2004. Uh, And around that period, or a little bit before then, I began to sense a call to ministry, and I attended First Baptist Hilliard, and this calling was confirmed, and I ended up going to Baptist College of Florida. And I graduated from Baptist College in 2008. My wife graduated from there in 2009. And after that, we ended up moving and going to Louisville, Kentucky to attend Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Now, if you have any questions about going to the number one seminary in the nation, come to me. If you have any questions about the number two seminary, which is Southeastern, go to Pastor Mike. Uh, I'm just kidding. Southeastern's a great school, uh, but it is number two. It's definitely. But verses 14 through 17 is what we're going to look at today in Matthew 9 with the message entitled, Experiencing Authentic Religion. And if you would please stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Beginning in verse 14, Matthew writes, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the word that you have revealed through the scriptures. We know, God, that in light of this word, that it is alive, it is true, and I pray, God, that you would get me out of the way, and you would communicate this gospel and this message to those whom you would draw. For it's in Christ's name I pray, amen. You may be seated. As we begin this morning, I want you to think about what's taking place every Sunday across the globe. I want you to think about the number of pastors and preachers who are preaching the gospel. In many of those churches, the gospel is being faithfully proclaimed. Celebration is a prime example every week of the gospel being interpreted correctly and soundly. Unfortunately for many other churches, unfortunately the gospel is entirely disconnected from the message. 
So for some of these pastors, they're simply in search of a spiritual nugget with hopes that they could one day possibly inspire the congregation. They have to be politically correct in order to not offend. For other congregations, the pastor stands up, and you begin to see that in light of how he's preaching, he understands the Bible as simply a handbook of do's and don'ts. And he points at the congregation, and he threatens them with eternal hell, fire, and brimstone if they don't get right. Sadly, many Christians and pastors today have failed to understand that the Bible is a grand story. This story progressively unfolds as God works throughout history. So think about the scriptures for a moment. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. God creates a kingdom, and in this kingdom, he establishes it in the midst of a garden where Adam and Eve are to enjoy the direct fellowship with God. And in this kingdom, God gives Adam and Eve the responsibility of exercising dominion in this kingdom. But of course, we know what takes place. We know what happens. Rebellion sets in. Sin enters the world. So God removes the kingdom that he had originally intended from this garden. He removes the direct fellowship that they had experienced. And Adam and Eve are banished from the garden. So you think to yourselves, well, God must be done with mankind. But that's not what happens, does it? In Genesis 3.15, God announces the very first proclamation of the gospel. He says that from Eve's offspring would come one who would put an end to sin and death, who would give a death blow to the very one who would introduce or who had introduced sin, that is Satan himself. So as the story progresses, as it unfolds, you have God revealing himself to Abraham this descendant of Eve, and he says, Abraham, from you all the nations will be blessed. From your descendants, they will become as numerous as the stars. And we see that this nation is none other than Israel. We see that redemption is initiated as he calls a people to himself. And so just when you think as they're delivered from Egypt, they're experiencing the blessings and the love and the mercy of God, you would think that everything would get better, but it doesn't. Sin continues to enter, and sin continues to be evident, even in the lives of the people of God who had been revealed, or who had experienced the revelation of God. But in his mercy, we see that he establishes the law through Moses, by God, he gives it to the people, and he says, this is who I am. I am holy, and my expectation of you is to be holy. You are to keep this law. Of course, we see that as the temple is erected, as we see that an altar is built, that sacrifices are the focus, the sacrificial system is focusing on the fact that forgiveness of sins must be met. But in these sins, in order to experience forgiveness, blood must be poured out. So you see God's mercy over and over again. You would think that they would finally, a light bulb would go off, but it doesn't. And so God sends prophets to warn them of the judgment that would come, but he also says that even though there is judgment, there will be a remnant of people that I will keep to myself in order for the promise that I had made in Genesis chapter 3 to continue, in order for it to eventually be revealed. 
So he sends different prophets. One of those prophets is Isaiah. And Isaiah describes this offspring of Eve as a king. He also describes the offspring as a suffering servant. And what we see is that Isaiah begins to describe that Jesus, this offspring, would be born of a virgin. His name would be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and the government would rest on his shoulders. When we get to the New Testament, we see that this seed arrives, that this king comes. And what he does through his death and through his resurrection changes everything. God keeps his promise, and the message of what the king has accomplished spreads throughout the world, and in fact, it spreads throughout the world to this very day. The theme that we see from Scripture in light of this grand story is that God seeks to establish his reign from heaven to earth, from creation to new creation, and it's accomplished through Jesus Christ. Everything from Genesis to Revelation, every page is about Christ. That's why every message must be about Christ. The Gospel of Matthew is focused upon this revelation. As we come to this book that we are diving into today, we see that Jesus is this long-awaited Messiah. And as he begins his Gospel we find that in the very first verse, Matthew identifies Jesus as such. He says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then Matthew begins in verse 2 to describe that Jesus is the fulfillment of what God had promised in Genesis 3. So really the way to understand it then is as Genesis says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, Matthew is saying, in the beginning, Christ was already in mind. Because God has been providentially working throughout history in order for this seed to arrive, and he has done so. So as the chapters progress, as Matthew reveals that prophecy after prophecy has been fulfilled through Christ, he talks about the fact that Jesus is born of a virgin. He talks about the fact that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. He talks about Mary and Joseph having to flee with Jesus to Egypt, that Jesus would be a Nazarene, that a prophet would come and prepare the people for this Jesus, which was who? John the Baptist. All of these things are being fulfilled. And then he says that Jesus was baptized and the Spirit descends upon him like a dove, that is, it anoints him just as the Spirit had anointed particular people with specific tasks in the Old Testament. Then in chapter 4, you see that Jesus goes through the wilderness temptations. For 40 days, he's in the wilderness. And it's very similar to what happened to Israel, yet theirs, of course, was for 40 years. However, Jesus never sins. And what he's revealing is that this offspring, this seed of Christ, that he is the true Israel, So all of these stories and accounts of Jesus were written so that the Jews would believe, so that the Gentiles would believe that this was the one who would most certainly come. And he begins his ministry in chapter 4 and verse 17. And he says this as he begins to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. So at this point, Jesus begins calling his disciples. He begins to cast out 
demons. He's preaching and healing the sick. He preaches the most famous sermon in chapters 5 through 7. He calms storms. He heals the lame and the blind men. And then when you get to chapter 9, you really see the mission of Christ begin to unfold. You see what his purpose is for. See, what happens is, is you have Jesus healing this paralyzed man, but he doesn't just heal the man. What does he do? He forgives the man of sins. Now, up to this point, the religious leaders, you know, they were uncomfortable with what Jesus was doing, but this is even worse. The religious leaders are infuriated. Why? Because he is basically claiming to be God. They don't know how to respond to this. And then you find a very brief testimony of the author of this gospel as Jesus approaches Matthew and says, follow me. And Jesus, or not Jesus, Matthew does so. Matthew follows obediently. And so you get to Matthew's house and Jesus is there eating with him. And not only is it Matthew, this wicked tax collector who is converted, but it's also other tax collectors. It's also other sinners who are unclean and who are considered worthless by the religious leaders. The Pharisees don't know how to act, so they approach the disciples of Christ and they say, why in the world is he fellowshipping and being with these people? Why is he eating with the very ones who are considered unclean? And Jesus, of course, hearing this, says in verses 12 through 14, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. So you see this shift. You see that this is a game changer. This is what Jesus was set out to do. And it's really beginning to take place and beginning to unravel in chapter 9. As we arrive at our text... We see how the story has been building up. We see the language of the kingdom of God, that it is arriving through Christ, and yet it's very different from what the leaders and the Jews had expected. You see, the disciples of John, they were not necessarily focused at this point on what Jesus and the disciples of Jesus were were conducting themselves, how they were socializing. They're more concerned with the lack of religious practices. And so in verse 14... The disciples of John say this, They came to him and they asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? You see, like the Pharisees, the disciples of John were concerned with how Jesus was going about with the people, how he was socializing, what he was doing. And in John 3, you see that they're baffled by the fact that Jesus and the disciples are baptizing And so the disciples of John go to John the Baptist and they say, why is it that this Jesus, who you claim to be the Messiah, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, why is he baptizing? And of course we know that it's not really him that's doing it, it's the disciples, but what does John the Baptist say? What is his response to the people? He says, I must, or he must increase, but I must decrease. He points them to this Messiah But at this point in Matthew 9, John has been arrested. The disciples of John cannot go to him for counseling. They cannot ask him, what does this mean? And so they're confused. They're trying to figure out what's going on. And so they ask him, why aren't you fasting? Now understand, there's nothing necessarily wrong with doing so. The 
disciples and, and even Jesus understood that fasting was important. In fact, in Leviticus 16, 29, God declares that the people should fast. They should fast once a year on the Day of Atonement. But as the years have progressed, and as the law has now had all of these added traditions, the Pharisees and the religious leaders say, not only are you called to fast once a year, but you should fast twice a week. That's what you're going to do. Everyone is expected to fast twice a week. It's required. And so, in a sense, you can't really blame these disciples for asking Jesus this. This is what they grew up doing. This is all that they've known. And they're uncomfortable when they discover that someone's doing it very differently. But this happens today in the church, doesn't it? It happens all the time. Whether it's an issue of what type of music is being sung, whether it's an issue of whether or not you preach with a tie, which this is the first time I've ever preached without a suit, and it's actually pretty awesome. It's cool feeling. I like this, these kind of shoes. But there's, there's controversy all the time. When I was in seminary, there was always different debates and hot topics. I remember they had a, a big formal gathering where they all spoke about, should Christians watch football? Crazy things. But I remember there was one specific topic that certain people were very, very focused on. I mean, it was their passion, their life, and it was the issue of homeschooling. Now, I have to be careful here because I know that there are plenty of people who homeschool here. And again, I'm not saying that that's a bad thing or mocking them by any means. But my wife and I have decided that at least at this point, our oldest son is going to go to public school. And I talked about this with one of the guys, and I remember him saying, how could you do that? Do you realize that you're sending your son to Egypt? Do you realize that you're sacrificing your child on a pagan altar before a pagan god? He'll never be exposed to the gospel enough. And I was shocked by hearing this. I mean, this was his passion, and it eventually was his identity. This happens all the time. The understanding is if you want to show yourself approved, only listen to Christian music. You want to show yourself approved by God to look like you're more of a follower, boycott any restaurant or store that sells alcohol. When I was in college, and there's a lot of experiences that I have of this. When I was in college, I was a server at Olive Garden. And I remember I rarely had to work on Sundays. But there was one specific Sunday that I always had to work, and it was actually Mother's Day, which, happy Mother's Day. But every server was required to work. And I remember I was seated with guests, and I began to recognize one of the girls. And I saw that she actually went to school with me. And so we began to talk, and she introduced me to her mom and her dad. Now, her dad was a chairman of the deacons in a church close by. And I remember him sitting and looking at me, and he's hearing us talk, and he just stops, and he goes, what do you plan on doing whenever you finish with school? And I said, well, you know, I believe that God's called me to the ministry. I've plan on one day pastoring a church, and after this, I want to go to seminary. And I remember him stopping and looking at me and saying, you really think that you're going to be a pastor? And I was kind of shocked by this, and I kind of just looked, and he says, how do you think you'll ever be a pastor when you work at a place like this, especially on a Sunday? And I was shocked, and being young, being arrogant, I was 22, I wasn't going to let him have the last word. So my response was, well, you don't have a problem with me serving you on Sunday, And I remember him simply saying, well, I got to eat somewhere. 
So many times we gauge our spiritual health on these outward things that are found nowhere in the Bible. Our understanding of the gospel is based not on what Christ has done for us, but rather on what we have done for Christ. So I do all of these things and I gain salvation. Now that's one side of the extreme. Here's the other. We come to church, we read our Bible every now and then, we pray every now and then, but it's just a mundane routine. We're just simply going through the motions. It's stale and it's cold just like what the disciples of John and the Pharisees had begun to do. It was rigid, and it was in no place fulfilling or satisfying. So this is the mindset of the disciples of John. But look at Jesus' response in verse 15. Jesus says this, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Now, in those days, a wedding was just this huge celebration. It lasted for seven days. And the bridegroom, his very best friends, he would select them, and they were responsible for all of the festivities leading up to the ceremony and, of course, what would happen afterwards. So to answer your question, yes, apparently there was awesome bachelor parties in the first century. But even after the ceremony, it kept going. The party kept going. And so Jesus is saying, this is not a time for fasting This is not a time for mourning. This is a celebration. The disciples of Christ were the groomsmen, and they're enjoying the festivities. They're enjoying the the celebration that's been offered in Christ's arrival. And what's astonishing about this bridegroom, we can't simply look over the fact that Jesus refers to himself as a bridegroom because God refers to himself as this throughout the Old Testament. In Isaiah 62, 5, God declares, As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. In Jeremiah 31, 32, God says that the people of Israel broke a covenant between them and God, even though he was their husband. The entire book of Hosea is focused upon this marriage relationship where God is the husband and Israel is the adulterous wife. What Jesus is saying is monumental. He's not just using it as a metaphor. He's saying the reason why we're celebrating, why there's such joy now, why fasting cannot be done is because the word that became flesh, that is God himself, is literally dwelling in your midst. This is huge. This changes everything. But he continues and he says that a time will come when this bridegroom will be taken away. But the original language here is that he's violently snatched away. And there's a bit of a debate on what this really means. Some commentaries would say, well, this is in reference to his crucifixion, and when he is resurrected from the dead, he ascends to the Father, that then from that point to the end of the church age, this is what he's referring to. Others would say, and they kind of take it as a twist, they would say, no, this is the period leading up to what would happen at the death and resurrection of Christ. And I tend to lean more towards that view. I believe that's what Jesus is saying. Because think about it. Think about what happens when Jesus is arrested. It's chaos, right? Peter chops the guy's ears off, uh, ear off with a sword. The disciples run away. They disperse. They're scared. 
Peter ends up denying Christ three different times. And where do you find them until the resurrection? They're hiding in an upper room. There's great mourning. There's great fear. But we know the rest of the story. We know what happens. We know that Christ conquers the grave. And as he conquers this grave, you discover that what he has done is that the wrath of God, the very judgment that was intended for you and me, was poured out upon him instead of us. So now what we can say, what we can celebrate is the fact that there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We receive this Holy Spirit that is the guarantee of the inheritance that we will one day receive at his second coming. Sure, there is mourning, and we can most certainly fast now, but this is a time of celebration. This is not a time to be down. So the first point is this. Authentic religion is not based upon the continuous works of men and women. Rather, it is based upon the completed work of Jesus. And yet so many Christians today struggle with the idea of being justified by faith. I have struggled with this. The fact that we're declared righteous by God. That because of Christ, everything is done. But what do we constantly do? We keep going back to this works-based salvation. If I could just be a little bit more like Jesus, then he would approve of me. If I could just read the Bible a little bit more, if I could just pray a little bit more, then he would be approved. Now understand I'm not saying that There's not fruit in your lives. There's most certainly fruit in the believer's life. But it's not because you're trying to earn your salvation. It's the overflowing, the outpouring of what Christ has already done. This is what compels you to serve others and to be obedient to Christ. Disciples of John and the Pharisees were focused on the external Jesus was focused on the internal, and what's next are these two illustrations that show the difference between this rigid Judaic system versus the followers of Christ. Notice first, Jesus says in verse 16, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Now, during those days, cloth was made of wool or linen. So when you wash the garment, when it was exposed to water the material would shrink. So Jesus is saying, you know, if you put this new material, this new linen on this old garment, what's going to happen? Not only is it going to shrink, it's going to tear it apart. It's going to be ruined. And what Jesus is literally saying to these disciples is that in light of your religious practices, in light of you focusing on these external things, there's no way that I can fit into your so-called religion. I won't fit. But then he continues with the next illustration. Look at verse 17. He says, Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and so both are preserved. Now, some of you are thinking, wineskins? Doesn't wine just come in a bottle? Well, no. In the first century, it was in wineskins. Now, this would normally be from an animal like a goat or a sheep. And what they would do is they would skin the animal, they'd remove the hair and turn it inside out. And so after it would begin to beg, they would sew the legs up, and the neck piece would be the spout. That's where they would pour 
the wine. It's actually kind of gross if you think about it. But what Jesus is saying is, is that if you pour this new fermenting wine in this old wineskin, it will eventually begin to crack and burst. So Jesus is not only saying that I can't fit into your religious system, he's saying that the truth that I am proclaiming to you, you cannot contain, you cannot hold it. So in light of these two many parables, what is it that Jesus is saying? Is Jesus saying then that the law must be destroyed, that he's changing everything? Well, the answer is no. That's not what he's saying. In fact, Matthew 5, 17 says this. Jesus speaking, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You're thinking, well, didn't he challenge the religious leaders and the Pharisees throughout his ministry? Didn't he go after them? In the Sermon of the Mount, he says, you've heard that it was said this, but I'm telling you something different. What does this mean? Here's what he's saying. These rabbinical traditions, all of these things that have been added on to the law, that's what he is completely abolishing. That's what he's replacing. He's not replacing the law. He's fulfilling it. So what does it mean to fulfill the law? What does it mean when Jesus says, I'm fulfilling the law? To give you a short answer, the focus is no longer on the rituals involved. In light of the death and resurrection of Christ, there's no need for animal sacrifices anymore. Paul says in Galatians 3.19 that the law was given because of sin and it would remain until the seed of Abraham arrived. Then, in verses 24 through 25, he says this, The law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. And now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Why? Because Christ has done it. He has accomplished it. He's filled it. And he's offered himself as the ultimate sacrifice. See, Hebrews 10.4 says this, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That is, it had to keep happening over and over again. Year after year, not only would they be celebrating that, sure, their sins up to that point were forgiven, but it was a reminder that they had to keep doing it. The sacrifices had to keep happening. The priests themselves had to make sacrifices. But because of Christ, we can rejoice in the next few verses of Hebrews 10. Verse 14, he says, For by this one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. This is huge. Because what he does is God forgives us of sins past, present, and future through the death of Christ. It's done. Do you see why Jesus could not simply be a band-aid to the traditions of old? Do you see why he cannot be this new patch on an old garment? Do you see why Jesus is saying, I'm new wine? There is new wineskins. So what we're seeing then is that for those who profess faith in Christ, for those who have repented of their sins, Jesus is saying that all people, regardless of race, regardless of your social status, Every single one of you can come to me. You can drink of this wine and you can live because Jesus offered himself. 
So what we see is that authentic religion is based upon the completed work of Christ. But secondly, in Christ, authentic religion is not based upon the continuation of old traditions. Rather, it is based upon the arrival of a new covenant. Because that's what Jesus is talking about when he says, in light of these new wineskins, there is a new covenant. Now that the law has been fulfilled, there is a different way that we are to live our lives. Earlier, I talked about God establishing a kingdom at creation. I talked about the fact that because of sin, this kingdom could not be experienced as God had originally intended. But through the arrival of Christ, through this promised seed, you see that things begin to look different. And as he's referencing the kingdom of God, what you see is that in light of these physical healings, in light of the exercising of demons, in light of him raising the dead, what Jesus is saying is, is that the kingdom of God is being restored. It's not about the glitter and the glitz and the glamour of him doing all of these healings or all of these miracles. It's about the fact that the kingdom is being restored. This is ginormous. And this new covenant is a description of what the citizens of this kingdom are living in. Jeremiah 31, I would urge you to write this down. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. This is the description of this new covenant. And I'm not going to go through the entire thing, but this is basically what God is saying. There is going to be a new covenant that I am going to give And in this covenant, I will place the law of God on the people's minds. I will write it on their hearts. And these people who are in this no covenant, or this new covenant, will not have to say, know the Lord. For every member of the covenant will be his. They will be a believer. You see, in Israel, the focus, yes, you got circumcised. Yes, there was this covenant that they were experiencing, but there was believers and non-believers in it. But this is totally different because they're all believers. And the reason is because of the work of Christ. And he forgives them of their sins and he remembers their wickedness no more. Church, for those of you who have repented, you are a member of this new covenant. And what's exciting and what's hopeful and what we can look to is that sure there is pain and there is suffering in this life this kingdom has not been fully restored yet but the time will come when christ the bridegroom will rip the heavens open the clouds will be open and he will return to fetch his bride and at that point you will experience redemption at its completion because the kingdom of god will be fully restored It is a place where a child will play at the den of a cobra and a calf will lie with a lion. There will be peace. There will be this kingdom fully revealed as God had intended. So in light of all of this, what are we to do? How does this apply to us? When crafting sermons, you have to answer the question, so what? How does this apply I believe that there are three things specifically that we can do with this, and they're very quick. The first one is this. Jesus is calling us to forsake legalism. We have to forsake legalism. One writer puts it this way. The gospel is not about the sacrifices we make for Jesus. It's about the sacrifice Jesus made for us. Modern legalism is no different than what the religious leaders did in the first century and even prior to that. 
And it is incompatible with Christianity, with authentic religion. Secondly, Jesus is calling us to embrace freedom. Now understand, when I say this, I'm not saying that because you're a believer, you simply profess faith and now you can live however you want. We see that all the time. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is is that because of his work, because of this new covenant, the bondage of slavery, that is sin, that has remained on our lives for so long is no longer the case. And because of that, we can freely serve Christ. We can freely come to him and share the good news of Christ. Because of what he has done, we can freely rest in him. Thirdly, Jesus is calling us to share this message. And this church has been a phenomenal testimony to answering that call as a missional church. This church, understand there are millions of people across this globe who are practicing in a dead religion that brings no hope, no life. The focus is simply this. Pray this many times. Meditate this many times. Empty yourselves. Rid yourself of desires this many times. And then you will have satisfaction. And that's not the case because the void grows deeper and it grows wider. Some of you this morning have been desperately seeking God's approval on your own. You think to yourselves, as long as I'm doing good, it's all good. That one day Christ will allow me to enter into heaven. Church, understand there are many good people with good intentions who are in hell to this very day. We have to understand that. There are others who have professed faith in Christ and who have repented of their sins. But in light of that, they have added on, like the Pharisees and these disciples of John, they've added to its requirements. They've not only become a burden to themselves, but they've become a burden to their families, to their children, to their neighbors or coworkers, or even their fellow church members. I would urge you this morning to repent of such an understanding and find your rest in the completed work of Christ where you are now a member of the new covenant. Regardless of where you're at, I would urge you this morning to not ignore God's drawing and his calling on your life. I would urge you to rest in the completed work of Christ, for that is the only way you will ever experience authentic religion. Let's pray. Father God, I am unworthy to preach your word. God, so many times I have thought that salvation, although it was completed in Christ, that there were many other requirements for you to show your approval of me. God, I pray that I would rest in Christ. I pray that I would embrace freedom. I pray that this church would do the same. I pray, Father, that they would share the message that has radically changed so many of our lives. In the light of this, God, I pray that we would experience joy and satisfaction that's found only in you. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Let's all stand.